Welcome to The Quest. I'm your host, Justin Kahn. The Quest is a podcast about exploring the journeys of the people around me. And today, my guest is Ranadu Lankagay. Ranadu is one of my closest friends, and I am super excited to introduce him to you. Ranadu is one of the most supportive people I know, and also one of the most persistent. And I really love that about him. We went to college together, but really got to know each other afterwards when he was at Google and I was building startups in San Francisco. And eventually we went on to start a company together. Uh, Ranadu has one of the most interesting stories out there. Before he was my co-founder of Whale, the video Q&A app we started, Ranadu was a pop star in his native country of Sri Lanka during the Civil War. And in our conversation, we discussed what it was like to grow up in an active conflict, becoming a famous musician, how he got into tech, what didn't work out about Whale, the lessons he learned from founding companies, especially while having kids, and more. And now here's my conversation with Ranadu. We've known each other for a long time. Long time now. Co-founders of companies together. Yes. Started a bunch of different projects. Uh, went to college together. Yep. Uh, but before all that, I want to just start with who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you're from Sri Lanka. Yeah, from Sri Lanka, born and bred. <laughs> and people here don't know it now that you work in tech, but you are a pop star, a legitimate pop star in Sri Lanka. <laughs> yeah, I guess. You were before you before you came over to tech, you had a, a second career or first career. Yeah. As a famous Sri Lankan singer and celebrity. Yeah. And you could say that. And then <laughs> you, you came you came here to work in tech. So like tell me, I don't know, just tell me let's start off with your who you are. What's your background? Right. Where you where are you from? Um so yeah, I was born in Colombo, Sri Lanka, which is the capital. Um, yeah, I grew up, you know, my family, I have one sister, a uh, younger sister was about 19 months younger than I am. Uh, it was a very interesting time to grow up in Sri Lanka, uh, because we had a war the whole time I was there. Uh, and my da- dad was part of the army, uh, as well. So he started as an officer and sort of kind of went up the ranks, uh, and ended up as a one-star general, um, so, I mean, there were some effects of being, uh, you know, there were some effects on my life of being a part of a military family and like having a dad in the army and stuff during a war. You've told me some crazy stories from yeah. that time. So what was it like to be in an active war zone you know, growing up? So I wouldn't call Colombo an active war zone. I think the north and the east of the country was like really where it was all going down. But... The Tamil Tigers, who was the rebel group that we were fighting, um, invented suicide bombing, right? So, like, we grew up around uh, this crazy, you know, atmosphere in Colombo where, you know, life would be normal for a period of time. And then, then you would suddenly get, like, a big bomb blast somewhere. They'll drive a truck into some, uh, like, a place or, like, near our school or... Someone would get shot or, you know, like crazy things would happen all the time. But I like one thing you build up is like resilience and like the whole like society as a whole. Right. Like because like the bomb blast happens on Monday and then everybody's kind of worried on Tuesday. But Wednesday, like school opens again and you just go back. So it's just part of life. It was just it just became part of life. Yeah. And yeah. There, you didn't feel like. Did, did people have PTSD from it? Was this happening every week, every month, every year? At least every year, I would say. But yeah, it was happening pretty regularly. Um, and I think culturally, like, I don't know. I, I feel like in America, like you actually share these things and people kind of talk about it openly. Um, our culture is not like that. So people just kind of hold it in or just ignore it uh, and just kind of move on like it didn't happen. Um, they kind of talk about it with family and stuff, but, you know, people just go about living. And I, I bet, especially in the sort of the males in the culture don't really share openly. That's just not a thing. And especially like, and then you take that. And then you also like, my dad was part of the army. So they, they share even less, right? So uh, there was a, it wasn't a vulnerable culture. No, I don't think so. I think that's something new for me that I learned from my friends here like you and, you know, friends in America, you know, that it was okay to share these things you were going through and be more open about what you're going through. Yeah. 
And so what was it like to have a dad in the army who was a general in the army? I mean, it was kind of interesting. On the one hand, you got exposure to these things that you probably wouldn't in uh, sort of, if not, was super into sports. So he would make me play a bunch of sports when I was a kid, but with soldiers. So he'd be like, oh, you're like 15. You're old enough so you can go now play rugby with the like a you know a full grown man which obviously was not fun for me <laughs> um, <laughs> right? or squash or like these random british sports almost like uh, were super popular in sri lanka so wait he would make you play like against people in his troop yeah exactly <laughs> that was my summer cuz we didn't have a summer when school was out he'd be like you're going to go to the sports complex at the army like the headquarters where he used to work at that point, and he he was like, "You're just gonna play sports all day uh, with soldiers, <laughs> so not kids my age." And wow. that that's how he kept me out of trouble, I guess. Uh, and then, tell me about what it was like, you know, when when you were growing up. What, what was your, what do you think you were gonna do when you were when you were an adult? Uh, that's a good question. So I don't know if I had a plan plan right um so my mom my mom worked at one of the biggest commercial banks there just you know she was a banker uh that definitely did have an influence uh on me as well uh i played a lot of sports i did music my dad's philosophy was like you just got to do everything under the sun and i'm just going to expose you to a lot of stuff and then let you sort of almost figure out your path, which is kind of different for parents uh, in Sri Lanka there. Actually, a lot of my peers, they would just be like, you're either going to be a doctor, engineer or a lawyer or something like that. It was like very pre-planned. I think my parents were a little bit more liberal in that. <laughs> they were like, OK, well, we don't care what you do. Uh, and I think your mom has told you this as well, like just do it to your best. Right. And just try to be the best at it. So I don't think I had a plan I was just doing a lot of different things, but I, I, one thing I did know was I, there was this feeling of like, okay, well, the war is going on. We don't know what's going to happen here. And uh, a lot of folks, especially in Colombo, who could go abroad to study uh, or afford to do that, uh, were trying to just, you know, go somewhere else. And most people went to the UK or Australia. Um, I think America was just not sort of the system wasn't really what we followed. Like we followed the British education system and people were just like, those people would leave. Uh, the other folks would, um, either a, just get a job out of school. Uh, and then there were these British certification systems that were like very popular, like SIM and SEMA, which was become an accountant or something like that. Uh, very, very, a very small percentage went to college in Sri Lanka. So I was in this interesting situation where I don't think my parents could have afforded to send me uh, to school in the UK or Australia or whatever. So I was like, okay, well, if I want to get out, I got to get a scholarship somewhere or I got to get into the college there. Um, so I I did work hard. Uh, there's this exam called the A-levels where you got to like score at the top of the whatever list, right? In whatever stream you take. So I took business and um, about 200,000 kids take this exam. And I think about 8,000 or less get into school, uh, college in Sri Lanka, which is the government university. Um, So yeah, I, I did well at that and I got in there, but then fortunately I got into school here and that wasn't really planned. Uh, I actually remember that. I can tell you that story if that's interesting, like the coming to the U.S. story. Yeah, but before that, you were actually, by that time, you were successful as an artist, right? Yeah. So in school, I started doing music. Um, How did you you get into music? Were your parents into it? uh, My parents, it's so funny. Like my family is not very musical. I didn't have anyone who played instruments or anything. My mom literally just bought me a keyboard one day uh, and said, play. Just in the vein of trying Just everything, exactly, experimenting with exactly. everything. That's Just exactly. a keyboard showed up and she was like, go at it. Yeah, go at it. 
figure it out. And then um, there was like a band in school as well. Uh, but yeah, it was just very organic. I just started playing with friends and just listening to stuff. And I've like self-taught, right? Like, so I just started listening to records and trying to play back. So what much. kinds of what kinds of music were you listening to? So my mom actually played everything at home, which actually helped me. And they, uh, so my dad went to study three to six months in the UK and my mom went with him. So like we just got left behind. My sister and I were just with my grandma for six months. But when they came back, my mom bought a bunch of tapes from uh, the UK. So like ABBA, Michael Jackson, George Michael. Uh, I, I mean, it's just like a lot of uh, great stuff, which I don't think a lot of kids would have had exposure to, right? And yeah. then she would play those tapes. And then also, like, there was this local music scene that they, you know, Gypsies and a few other bands in Sri Lanka that they liked. And they were just playing those records all the time at home. And those are the ones I pretty much grew up on. So you started playing music in school and you were just trying to recreate the music that you heard that heard. your parents were playing. Yeah, pretty much. And then when did you start thinking, like, I should create my own music? So I think it was when I was, like, maybe 15 again like my mom just was like uh, not a lot of kids by the way had computers and she bought a computer which was like a super luxury at that point right um and then i figured out how to download like some midi random software like fruity loops or <laughs> yeah, something like that so the equivalent of that and started messing around more just more or less how kids get into it today but we didn't have the internet to learn and then she found someone uh, through a mutual friend who was an electronic musician in Sri Lanka, which was pretty much like, it's I like know how to like <laughs> hook up a keyboard to a MIDI controller or like a MIDI thing and then like hook it up to a, a computer so I can show you how to do that, right? So I kind of learned a little bit from him and then I just pretty much just like, because I was making up tunes in my head already, just started making stuff. And then I grew up in... Um, the first part of my life, I was in this kind of ar army sort of compound kind of complex with other kids whose parents were also in the army. And then my neighbor there was pretty much one of the first pop groups in Sri Lanka. So I made a bunch of like demo stuff and I sent it to him and he was like, hey, this is good. Like, do you want to do a song with us? And these guys <laughs> are just literally coming out and they they got signed to Sony, which was like the first group to get signed to Sony in Sri Lanka, like an international label. And uh, it was Sony India, actually. And then they were like, oh, I like this one song and pretty much took it. And we reworked it in a real studio, which was my first experience there. And then pretty much put it on the radio and it just like went from there. How old were you when that happened? Probably like 17. And this is in the late 90s? Yeah. 17, 18, yeah, something like that. And international record labels were just starting to get into Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. Yeah, exactly. So India, in, the India label set up a like a sub-label in Sri Lanka because they were interested in the market. There's about 20 million people who live there, so uh, they wanted to penetrate that market. So uh, that's how we pretty much got ended up getting signed to Sony India. And then, so then you got signed. Like after that one song. Yeah, pretty much. So I started working with those guys. Uh, that song blew up. And then I like toured with them a lot before uh, before sort of Sony again approached me and said, hey, do you want to do your own album? I always wanted to do it because uh, I, I wanted to do a, like a slightly different sound from them, uh, more R&B and kind of just have my own thing, I guess. Uh, I always had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. I think I got from my mom. She was just always hustling, always hustling. <laughs> so were you inspired at this point from the Western music then from like the, the U.S.? Uh, yes. And then I also weirdly, I was, I guess I also got into like electronic music pretty early. Uh, so Sri Lanka didn't have a ton of, uh, radio stations, like English radio stations, but there, I think when I was growing up, literally, there was like two or three for the whole country, right? Uh, but one of them would play techno, electronic, like Tiesto yeah. at, from midnight till 3 a.m. on Saturdays, right? 
And I would just always, always listen to that show. And then I like really, really got into electronic music. So that actually really influenced me. Like the first few records, all of this stuff that I was messing around on the computer was mostly electronic music. I was trying to make like, Sinhalese or Sri Lankan electronic music. Back in like in Back the late in the 90s. 90s, I guess. Yeah. Which so is, when you came out with this stuff, did people, were old people just like, what is going on? Yeah, it was always <laughs> like, what is this stuff? Uh, it, it was just like so out there uh, when I started. But I think over time, what I realized was, especially working with the other band, like I figured out like what the general audience wanted. And I try to blend what I wanted to do with sort of what they could handle almost. So like, like how did you know what the audience want? Like the audience of, I guess it was like young people who were listening right. to pop music. Um, so I think they wanted melodies, first of all. And then like they wanted songs, right? Not just like beats and like that kind of house music structure. Um, and the, I got that sense from touring with the other band, right? Uh, because they were making pop music and I, I could sort of see what the crowd reacted to as I mean I played like hundreds of shows so you were going around as like 17 years old yeah just like touring touring hundreds of shows shows. around Sri Lanka yeah while there was like a military conflict pretty much so I mean was that like touring (laughs) what's the what's the energy like in a country where there is that you know kind of active conflict I, I think again that kind of uh I mean this sense of like ignoring everything and just like partying on or going on like life is okay uh you could see that right like you like people would still go out and go to shows and go try to live a normal life even though there was like a, this crazy war going on um i think in the the war zones uh, it wasn't the same experience, but for two thirds of the country, it was just okay. Well, we get bombed sometimes, but otherwise, we're just gonna go out, have our family things, and go to the show and like enjoy life, right? Uh, I I feel like there's this real sense of resilience in Sri Lanka. Like there's always bad stuff that happens, but people just, I, I guess, like you don't have a choice. You just have to get up and keep going. Yeah, it reminds me of Israel actually visiting yeah. Israel and how when I visited there, obviously there's huge amount of security right in in the country and armed soldiers everywhere but people are just kind of living their life trying to live as best they can exactly yeah exactly okay so you're making music you put out your album yeah and it does well yeah uh so i made music and then actually i got into college then uh, so, so yeah tough choice right uh so you apply to colleges in the u.s so you're yeah you're actively like now a celebrity yeah. And you're famous in Sri Lanka, which is a right. pretty small country. And you are decided, like, you also apply to college in the yeah, U.S. Yeah, I also apply to college because I didn't even think about that as a not a choice. Like, co- going to college was not, like, not going to college was n- not a choice. You're good Asian. Like, yeah. people are. <laughs> exactly. Your, right. par- your parents had instilled that into you that you were going to go right. to college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, but they thought I was going to go to college in Sri Lanka, right? Like, like I said, like, I don't think they could have afforded it. So... And then I was in that track to get in, and I, I actually did well at that uh, the A levels. I was actually the, I think in Sri Lanka I was the third, third of the whole country. Yeah, like and there's eight eight thousand students. That, uh, there was like a hundred thousand students. Third of a hundred thousand. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, so I got get into school there. I don't apply to most colleges because they don't offer financial aid in, in like the UK and Australia randomly my best uh friend growing up he uh was like i think i'm gonna go to the u.s because his brother went to mit and he's like i'm gonna take this test called the sat and like we have no college prep there's no sense of what you need to do no there's no college counselor guidance counselor my teachers don't even speak english even though i went to the biggest public school in sri lanka like most of them didn't right uh so i get uh torn up SAT book that's probably five years older version from this guy and I'm like okay well if you're doing it let me just like take that test as well so I like study for it and I take it uh, and then figure out from him how to apply I literally wrote I didn't have a you know a, a printer or anything at home so I like I remember like writing the college uh, applications by hand 
Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> On the paper. Uh the essay I wrote in like maybe a day because I didn't know that the college essay was a big deal and I actually wrote just what I felt. Yeah. Which was, I, I remember it was like, what would you change about the world? I, I, you know, I wrote about the conflict and sort of going through what we had to go through in Sri Lanka with my dad and uh, being in the army and all of this stuff that I, you know, kind of touched on. And then also was like, I, I wish for world peace because it's like, I've seen this conflict and it's wreaking havoc in my country. And so anyway, I re- write the, the, the thing in just like a day. Uh, and I remember it was just like the postmark deadline and almost missed it. And my mom had to actually ask someone to like, as the mailbag was closing for the day, because you had to postmark mark by five o'clock on a certain day. It was like 5.15 when we got there and they were closing up and he had, he had to like ask the guy to open the bag and we threw it in. And um, and yeah, that's uh, a few months later, I get a letter and it's like, you got in uh, to Yale where we went. And uh, I think that changed my life, really. So how did your parents react when you got into Yale? Uh, my mom was overjoyed. My, I mean, they didn't really know that it was a big deal. Like, I remember actually, this is a funny story too. Like, my dad was stationed outside of Sri Lanka, uh, like the main city at that point. So he was gone a lot, right? Like, he, during the war, like, he was gone for months. Uh, and I I remember talking to him on the phone and he's like, are you going to go? And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Dude, I just got in here. And then I had to like educate him on like what the college was and like how big of an opportunity it is. But like, obviously I think I I benefited from like Yale's policies, right? Like there's no way they could have sent me there if they had to raise the money for it. So how many Sri Lankans get to go to Yale? Like uh, how many were in our I class? was the seventh ever. ever. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and that was the first time, had you been out of the country before? No, I, I, well, I actually, yeah, I think by the time I came here, I had been out of the country. But yeah, I, I think I went to like, oh, I'm trying to remember where I went. I think I went to Singapore or somewhere once. And then with the band, uh, with uh, the other band that I toured with, we went to Kazakhstan of all places for some music competition. Uh, uh, I think you told me that yeah, once. You it's so to, yeah. Because it's so like such a like out of the way place to go to, but they have this music competition for like Asian bands, and that was in Kazakhstan that year, and we went uh, to that. Those are the only two places I had been to. And so, what did you? What were you going to do with your music career? Or what did you? What were you thinking you were going to do? I mean, I was like, because at this point you were, you were signed to a label, right? I was. But I guess like, like being signed to a label there is not like being signed to a label here, right? You sign to a label, essentially what you get is we're going to like make your CD and we're going to put it in stores. The rest is up to you, right? Yeah. Versus being signed to Universal if you're like the most priority artist here or like say a Sony and your Beyonce, like they're doing everything for you, right? They're pushing you and a lot of people's kind of livelihoods depend on you and stuff. So it was kind of different, like you still kind of, it was almost like indie, but you were signed to this label and they kind of gave you an, ex- like there was an expectation that you would make X amount of albums. So, I, I mean, how I thought about it was like, I can always fulfill this obligation in the summer, right? Yeah. And I don't have to tell these guys. So you're like, I'm just going to go to school because that's <laughs> yeah. a smart career move or yeah. a smart thing to do. Yeah. And then I'll just figure this music stuff out on the side. Right. Exactly. Which is kind of, I mean, it was still hard. I, like, I wanted to do music, but then again, like, I felt the conflict inside of me as well as, like, for, for parents, there was a no-brainer, right? Like, you're going to school, right? Yeah. Um, but there's this kind of tug of war between, like, what you wish you can do in the moment and what's kind of right in the long term. And I think I've had to go through that for a, like a long period of time. Like I had that conflict, right? Should I have said and just like done music? Because I had a bunch of friends who just did that and Whoa. did pretty well. How do they? How are they doing? They're doing great. I mean, at that point though, like the market wasn't that huge uh, yeah. for what we were doing, and we were just like almost like pioneering this type of music, like hip hop, R and B, like Western sounding music. 
in Sri Lanka in our language uh, and just starting to get our sound out to India and like other regional places and just tour and all this stuff. But the war was still this thing that was hanging over your head, right? Because then a bomb would go out and then there won't be shows for like a little while at least, right? Yeah. Um, and so that like that was a big consideration for me as well because I was like, I don't know when this thing is going to end because by the time I left, it was on for, I want to say like 18 years at that point, pretty much since I was born. And yeah. then, um, I mean, it went on for another 10 years after that. So you decided I'm going to, you know, the choice, you took the path of stability. Right, basically, pretty much, yeah. Which was to come to the U.S., go to an excellent college, yeah. get an education, and yeah. then just see, try to work out the music stuff on the side. Right. Were you able to do that? I think I did the best I could. Uh, and I, I think I'm still kind of, to this date, sometimes I think I get frustrated because I wasn't able to fully focus on it ever. Yeah. Uh, other than like before I went to college, right? Uh, and then during college, every summer, I would just, I didn't have summer jobs in the U.S. I would just like go back, record an album, be in the studio, promote, uh, be on TV, do music videos, like do, that was my summer, every summer. That's, I mean, that's kind of every <laughs> college student's dream. Like you're going back, you're basically living the last life where you're in New Haven, Connecticut. Yes. First time living abroad. Yeah. What, I mean, what was it like to be there? And But then, then you're going back in the summers and you're being a like a pop celebrity pretty much it was it was it was like two lives right like yeah. and i think i've had that experience like my whole life pretty much uh, until like recently uh where it's like when i go to sri lanka like i'm a different person than when i live here yeah right like here i'm just like i was just a regular college student i played squash on the team and just like try to do like all these pop societies and just be a normal college student i mean other than like I think even at school, like I was DJing a lot and just got into music a lot there, but I wasn't like a celebrity here or anything, right? Like I was just like a regular college student. And then when I went home, I would land at the airport and like sign autographs and then like... Would people would know you or they recognize you? Yeah, I would just like land, they would recognize me and then life would be different when I got home, right? Yeah. For the three months or whatever. And then it was just like full stop, back to school, you know, studying and just kind of doing that again. So when you graduated, were you thinking like you should go music full time? So um, I thought about it, but again, I don't know. I, I think it's like... I wanted to stay here and that wasn't a viable option, right? It was like, again, like, do you want to stay in America or you want to go home and be a celebrity, right? Yeah. And, and like most people, I think, would say, choose like, go home and be a celebrity. Right. You don't think so? <laughs> I, th I think if you grow up in America, yes, right? But I think the maybe it's the motivation as well for me. Like I, the motivation was not to be a celebrity. That's not why I made music. Um, when I started making music was just, I just had a passion for music and just making things and then also like impacting sort of the culture there. Uh, and I felt like, I don't know why, but like the records, like even if I didn't promote them or some of the stuff I was doing even after college while I was working would still reach a lot of people just based on the song. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that, because it's a smaller market without yeah. me being there. Um, so that actually helped in some ways to be okay with that decision. But I, I, I like I said, I, I don't think I still fully resolve that conflict, right? Like, like go, should I just be a musician or be, uh, be who I am here? Uh, but I think over time I've realized, oh, I could do both and be happy. And um, that's, that's sort of where I've settled, right? Like to try and do the best at whatever I'm doing in the moment. Yeah. So, so you ended up deciding, I want to stay in, in the U.S. and, and yeah. did the classic Yale thing and got a job in finance. Yeah. <laughs> got a job on Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> Just because like that was where the momentum was. Right. Like yeah. think about being at Yale at that time, right? Like most of your friends, where are you going after uh, graduation? And they're like, I'm going to call, uh, I'm going to New York and I'm going to do consulting or banking, right? 
and I think like my mom being a banker kind of influenced me a, as well. But I think I was at, still at the point trying to figure out who I was and growing up in a culture where you're like almost like safety and this kind of stability is drilled into you. Like that's the thing you should do. So like undoing some of that was hard, right? Like you, I was almost like trained to be um, sort of follow a path. Yeah. And like the first break of that was doing music, right? Which is not something that people in Sri Lanka like think of as a viable career. Uh, but then later on, like I sort of kind of got to where I was by sort of almost undoing some of that training of following safety, right? Right. And stability. Yeah. And then after, so you worked in finance for a couple couple years. Yeah. Then what you decide you came what to the west? Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, I think my uh, best friend growing up in Sri Lanka, he was at Google at that point. Uh, he had gone to Stanford and gotten a job at Google as an engineer, and he was just like, "Hey, you should uh, come out west." And the first time I like came to visit, uh, I, I I remember being over California, looking down and going this place looks beautiful. And then like after that first week, I just wanted to be here. And so I went back and then uh, he was at Google. Like I said, my friend was at Google and he was like, you should apply here. Uh, So he, uh, he kind of referred me and then I figured out um, like a random role that I guess they interviewed me for in one of the groups and just took it. Right. Uh, on a whim and just uh, came out to California. And that was another break. Right. Like, I think I was kind of trying to the, the right path, I think, after two years was to become an associate or go do an MBA. Like, that's what people are doing. And I decided, no, I'm just going to like instead go to Google. Like Google was big, but not like the biggest company in the world at that point. Right. Yeah. Like my dad, again, didn't know what Google was. <laughs> Yeah. Right at that point, he's living in Sri Lanka. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to like take this job at Google um, versus staying in New York. Right. Um, And doing another banking job or like kind of going to school again. And then, yeah, he was like, I I don't know what that company is. Like, what are you sure? You know, uh, you want to take this? Why you move to California? Like, uh, but the, yeah, I think I've just like over time being like, this is the thing that I want to do. So that was one of those big steps as well. I think kind of getting out here, getting out here to Silicon Valley. And yeah. then, yeah, the, I mean, this whole time you're releasing music still all my vacation. And like, even when I was on wall street, I remember like I was working with a bunch of rappers in New York that I found on MySpace at that point. And yeah. I would just like go to these random studios in like Brooklyn and the Bronx late at night and then i would just like sleep for like two or three hours and go back to my desk on wall street as an analyst at like 7 a.m it's just like two different lives like the whole time uh i released two albums i think after college as well so i released two when i was there uh at yale and then afterwards i released two more and then so while you were at google i remember i mean this is kind of when we connected yeah uh, more yeah after school, you were like working at your job in treasury at Google. Right, in treasury, like yeah. Managing Google's massive amount of money. Money, yeah. <laughs> but then you were also like hustling to make connections with artists. Yes. While you were like by using Google, basically. Right, pretty much by using Google. So I remember this guy who was, uh, was a good friend of mine uh, in uh, uh, new business development uh, was like, don't think about what you're doing at this company. Think about what you can do. I think it was a good, uh, and like what you can use this name to do that is also lined up with what you want to do. Right? <laughs> that sounds like something out of Silicon Valley. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right? So it's like your job function is X. That is irrelevant. You can just say that you work at Google and you can just invent whatever position you want which is in line with what you want to do. So if, if it's music BD or talking to artists or making connections, you can do that. No one is holding you back. Like your job is to take care of Google's money, but that doesn't mean you can do this other, you cannot do this other stuff. So he's kind of, kind of was the first guy to give me that kind of push to do, do that. 
And then, um, yeah, I was just like, okay, well, I'm going to all these festivals and I have opportunities to meet these artists, but then how can I help them from being, from me being at Google, right? And uh, especially in the electronic scene, not a lot of them had connections at YouTube or Google because, uh, I mean, these teams aren't that like that huge in terms of artist relations. So they had to cover, you know, Beyonce and Madonna, uh, but not maybe, say, an Avicii or a Tiesto. Like at that point, electronic music was just like coming up in the U.S. for the second time. Yeah, it was like 2010 to 2012. It, exactly, like yeah. exactly. And so there wasn't a lot of coverage there. So I was just like, oh, this is an opportunity. I can just like help these guys like connect with the right people at YouTube um, so I ended up helping a bunch of festivals like Ultra and uh, these electronic artists like make connections and do projects with Google uh, while I was there in my 20% time, I guess. So your 20% project was basically connecting with doing bus- music business Dev- development. Yeah, yeah. For, uh, for these artists in the electronic space with Google. That was, that was hilarious. How did, yeah. how did, did anyone at Google care they didn't. I mean, they didn't in that I would sort of go through the right channels after they came in. Like my my job was almost done at that point, right? Like it was just like, okay, I went and first met, met a bunch of people at YouTube and said like, hey, what's your job? And what are the types of things you guys are interested in? And um, I also explained to them that I was meeting these, these people and could I send them to you? So I made those relationships internally and then externally when I met the right people and had thought of a right opportunity i would just like put these people together um so i don't think it was like anyone really at inside internally was like threatened by it or anything <laughs> yeah <laughs> but in, i remember you got you got ultra sponsored by google google yeah <laughs> uh, i think you worked with did some stuff with the vg right and Tiesto. right yeah when it was pretty early on uh yeah and tiesto as well for google play launch and yeah did a bunch of stuff just i got hard will to do a mix for uh, Google Play and put it on the front page worldwide on Google Play. Yeah. Yeah. This is my part-time hustle at Google. <laughs> nice. <laughs> then, so how did how did you make the transition to being an entrepreneur? I actually always wanted to start something. I just had this itch uh, the whole time. But again, I think a lot of people go through this. Like I was on an H1B um, at Google, which kind of prevents you from almost prevents you from starting a startup unless you like want to take ex- I I know people who have figured out ways to start a startup while being on an H1B so there's nothing you cannot do but so I kind of was like also waiting for that whole uh thing to happen and as soon as it happened I was like always thinking of ideas and I was trying to spin up stuff with friends but I think like you know you had been here for a while and also worked on a bunch of startups and once I sort of met you and we were talking about different ideas, I felt like that was a better way for me to start something because you had learned from your previous <laughs> startups versus trying to start something just like without an idea, right? Without a friend who had done it. I guess in some ways that's that's how it came together. I was just like always thinking about it, but didn't, didn't make the leap. Uh, and then I think... One thing I learned about you is you're like really, really good at motivating people to do what they want to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think a couple of the talks we had was when I was like, it's now or never. I just got to do it. Yeah. And uh, and I'm super glad I did again. So we were yeah. talking about, we started talking because you were into music and I was super into electronic music. Right. And at the time... I guess I was like every other tech person who becomes kind of successful. They're like trying to figure out how to become a DJ or how to get into music, which is like where all the cool kids were. Yeah. Every musician at the time was like trying to figure out how they could get some tech money. Right. Or like, you know, get promote, you know, get closer to tech. And so that was how we connected. And we started talking about, you know, different apps or social, you know, social apps or different ways that people could discover music. Right. And, um, then we started working on this project called The Drop at first, which was yes. a kind of like daily distribution. Yeah. Like a daily song, song of the day. Song app. of the day. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and then that turned into a, almost like a Reddit for music. Yeah. 
I uh, remember the first one you actually built yourself with Damien. Yeah, Damien and I, my brother Damien and I built the, the first, um, the the Song of the Day app. Yeah. Which is kind of an interesting idea. It was kind of like, I guess like Hype Machine. Yeah. Or something like that. But what what is our lesson learned there? Uh, I mean, the TLDR for the readers is none of these things worked. Yeah, none of these things none worked. Of, none of these <laughs> things really worked. I think we were... For me, if I was to say what the lessons were of this, we were tr- really. Tr- I was really trying to figure out how to force something to work in music. Like I really wanted something to work in music instead of really building something from you know with from an internal need. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like where where there's like a a true internal need of like something that I want myself to r- see in the world for some for some reason. Right. I think we were like kind of. Starting with the idea versus starting with a problem. Right. Yes. Right? Uh, and that's a trap that I think a lot, I mean, to this date, like you have to double check, uh, especially now that I've learned a lot about product is like, am I just chasing an idea or am I chasing a, am I trying to solve a problem? And yeah. it's, it's hard because you get excited about ideas. Right. Right. Ideas are what, kind of spur you into action and like want uh almost make you want to solve the problem uh and it's not necessarily natural for most people who are especially like creatives uh, because creative stuff happens out of ideas right it's not because of problems right so and i think you're pretty creative as well and that's why i think we start from ideas yeah but i think a lot of companies start from problems Right, like a lot of successful companies, exactly. anyways, <laughs> yeah. start from props. That's a really yeah. good observation. It's kind of the opposite of the music industry, in a way. right? Right, or exactly. The, or Hollywood. Yeah, where... exactly. Because it's all ideas, right? It's like that's what spurs like people come together. They get super excited about the idea and then start working on the project, right? Right. Uh, because that's the idea is sort of how a story forms, or a song forms, or a book forms. Yeah. Right. Creative pursuits. I think startups are still like that, but I think the best startups, though, come are, from a real problem. Come from a real problem. And someone's trying or to solve Or you a real get super lucky, which is what happens in consumer, and you end up like, solving a problem that you didn't even know that existed. Like Twitch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Justin TV and Twitch, just getting, we got kind of super lucky. I think we had. You know, it started off as an idea, or like right. Justin TV did, like let's make our own live reality broadcast. Right. That's that wasn't solving anyone's problem. And yeah. We just kind of morphed it over time, luckily, into something that did solve a problem. Right. But it was pretty random at first. You know that we yeah that we got down that, yeah. that path. But ideas still, I I do want to stress. I think ideas inspire people, and without them you wouldn't be able to get people or like if you're not able to articulate an idea and get people excited about it, you wouldn't be able to get people to join you and start the thing in the first place. Yeah. So as an entrepreneur, I think you have to talk about both the problem, but also the ideas that solve the problem in a way that it's inspirational to the people that work with you. Yeah. Right. If you just talk about the problem too, I don't think that it's that, like, I don't think talking about problems is inspirational. Right. Right. It's like, oh man, this thing sucks. And like, I, I really want to solve it. But if you only kept focusing on like, this is a problem and not really some ideas about the solution. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's not awesome. sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. So we built in that company a bunch of different things. Most of them yeah. failed. Right. Um, including, uh, well, they all kind of failed, but we the one that was most successful actually was this thing called the Artist Union, which was yeah. kind of solving a problem of helping yeah. artists promote their music online. That's right. And the then, original mission of the company, right. by the way, as it well. It just yeah. wasn't a very good business. Maybe it was like a too small of a of a market. Yeah, exactly. And then we built Whale, which was this video Q&A app, yeah. which was uh, helping, it was basically allowing people to pay each other to answer questions by video, like short right. one-minute videos. Right. And again, I think even that, we did have a theme, by the way. This was never, I think, we didn't really set out or like set up a, this is the company mission and we're going to solve this problem. But I feel like most of the things we ended up working on was to solve this kind of problem for artists or creative people to either promote themselves or make money or monetize their audience. There was a theme. 
Yeah. Right. So we all were similar, right? Like we were, we were like, well, this initially, it was like, okay, if we can get this tool to um, artists and celebrities so that their fans can then add, interact with them, ask them questions, and they can potentially monetize. And it didn't work, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I get, I, people seemed to, people liked it. There was this core segment of users that like it, and a lot of people, you know, I get pinged on Twitter occasionally. A lot. Someone is like, what happened? This was like such a great app. I still get at least one ping per week on it, average. It was kind of adjacent to some of the things that are working, like Cameo, for example. Yes, yeah. Uh, which is a startup that lets you ask celebrities to give shout-outs to your right. friends or family or whatever yeah. and pay them for it. That yeah. company is doing really well. Really, really well. Yeah. So what did we fuck up? <laughs> like, what was wrong? What did what we do, do you wrong? you think we fucked up? Well... It's hard to say. I think we didn't target. I think they were they're targeting something different, which is they have more of an explicit use case, which was instead right. of asking a question, it's more like giving a shout out to a specific person. Yeah, which I think is interesting because yeah. that's something you might you you can like learn how to do. I think users need to be you have to you have to make your product very simple and explain how to use it. Right. right. And I think when right. things are open ended. A lot of times, it's really difficult for people to know how to use your thing, right? right. So here we it was like that. anyone could yeah. answer, ask anyone any type of question, yeah. And you know, from like, how are you doing today, to a technical question about a specific thing they're a subject matter expert on, right? And anything in between. And we didn't really have a specific use case, whereas Cameo's use case is very specific, which is like you right. have a friend, you want to buy them a shout out from their favorite celebrity, yeah. And I it's think that's a bucks or whatever. Yeah, I think that's a really good insight because that that was actually a problem, right? Like our users would come up to us and say, like, I don't know what to ask this person, or like, I don't know what to ask. And and sometimes in the formation of the community, though, your those types of things become norms. Like it becomes a community norm. So this community right. asks about tech, right? So I'm I know like to go check each person's bio and then ask them a question about their business or you know, their position, right? Like their role in a company or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. We didn't have a specific use case and the use case really came out of the Snapchat, right? Like yeah. the Snapchat Q&As you were doing. Right, which is kind of a unique, unique. thing. It wasn't yeah. something that many people were doing. I was on Snapchat at the time doing Q&As with this audience of, I guess, young wannabe entrepreneurs or, or right. maybe young entrepreneurs. And people would ask me questions and that was fun, but it wasn't something that was like everybody was doing or it was a widespread uh, consumer phenomenon. Right. Right. So we threw in the towel. I mean, it was a beautiful app, sadly, like we made yes. a really beautiful app, but it didn't work. And we kind of threw in the towel on that. And then we decided to, well, really you took the team and built this poly app. Yeah. Just like a, <laughs> which is crazy. Kind of a polling quiz app yeah. on Snapchat. Yeah. Yeah. Polling quiz app on Snapchat before... So Snapchat has this thing called Snapkit. Uh, I like to explain it as the first Snapkit app before Snapkit existed. So Snapkit came into existence because of what we, I guess, as a team uh, figured out how to do on Snapchat, which is essentially take an, an anonymous polling app and show people how to attach it to their story using the attachment tool as a hack to get our distribution on Snapchat stories. Um, and it was, like, it was very simple. It went crazy viral. Crazy viral. Like, I had never seen anything Tens like of that. millions of people used it. Used it. I, yeah, I think in the end, there was about 100 million people used it to vote on polls. Yeah. And I think there was like 20 million people who actually created a poll. And this is like well. in the course of two months or something Yeah, like it's that. a couple of months uh, but again, a huge lesson in sort of virality does not equal success uh, and retention is all that matters, yeah. right? Because uh, it was something people would try once and then they would just, you know, it was in, okay, but not, you know, the most compelling thing. Exactly. They weren't coming back. It wasn't, it wasn't a retentive use case, right? Like people weren't using it again and again. And that's what you need for a company yeah. to be successful or a product to be successful. You just need to build something that people use every day or people use a lot. So you have been doing startups for five years. What are the, you know, continuous startups. Some yeah. of them got 
significant traction, but yeah. then didn't work. Some of them got no traction. And no didn't traction, work. yeah. Um, and some of them remains to be seen. But what were the big life lessons from, from all of this? I think one of them I said, right? Like, I think try to solve a problem you're passionate about, which is hard for me to do, again, because I'm a creative and I like ideas. But try to think about the problems you're solving. Um, the second thing is that the I think I the biggest thing I learned in personally for me was like it feels like the end of the world almost every day uh, because you're not something is going wrong and it always feels like oh it's the end and like I'm not gonna come back from this even with all the like the ups and downs and like especially with the failures like after you get back up you kind of build up strength right I think that resilience i think i got from sri lanka as well but like doing this i really got that where now i know like i can figure out a way to get up and i think that's like a lifelong gift yeah that i got from my startup right that i don't think you get at a big company or doing something easier um the third thing is it is i i do think it's a hard path for uh, and people need to be realistic about that because i think in 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 silicon valley i think that there's like this aura and like you know it's all unicorns and rainbows rainbows kind of vibe when it comes to entrepreneurship like that people think it's going to be like that or they think their company is going to be like that including me when i started i was like oh no i'm going to be the exception like my company's going to do great and you learn very soon that that's not the case. Uh, but I think you just have to be realistic about uh, sort of the path you're taking and be prepared to, uh, you know, go through the ups and downs of a startup. And uh, and I and the uh, and the biggest thing from that is you're gonna go through a lot of hard times, and it's every day is, you're gonna feel like it's gonna all. Like, even if you're successful or not successful, you're going to feel the same, right? Uh, That's the thing that I think you make this kind of relationships with other entrepreneurs who are also doing the kind of following that similar path. Some of them are more successful. Some of them are less successful. You're just all on this in this game together, pretty much. Um, So I think that learning from other people that, whether you're like super successful or not successful, you're all feeling the same same kind of things. Uh, it was also pretty cool, like just knowing that you're not alone. Yeah. And tell me about like the worst time ever starting a startup. I, I, every entrepreneur I feel like has one or two moments where they were just at their lowest low. Yeah. Ah. Uh... I can't. I can't even think of like one because there's so many. Yeah. Uh, but I think the pivots were really hard cause, uh, cause like we did so many pivots and for me, I just, it always felt like I was trained to do this because of music, because you, you make a record and you put it out and then it's popular for a while. There's no retention for music, right? Like there is retention, like people do listen to it, but like, the average curve is like people listen to it a lot and then like not much, but you know, there's like a long tail, right? Yeah. And how you grow is just by doing something new and keep doing new things. Right. So it's almost like you're starting over again and again. Yeah. You're always starting from, from, from scratch, from scratch, right? right? Like nobody cares like that. Your last record came out five years ago and it was popular, right? Like that kind of fades away. Um, I think in startups, that's hard for especially for your team and people who are not used to that yeah right and like it felt like we were okay launching this thing working on that community and then like it would grow to a certain extent and then we would evaluate okay is this growing fast enough or not or like what do we want to do with it here's our plan but then we would think okay well it's not working let's do something new right when you do that five, six, seven, eight times, like it really burns some people out, right? Uh, and including myself, right. right? Really, I think that was hard. And I guess like you gotta f- 
figure out if you're doing this kind of lab kind of startup, like that, that's the journey or. Right. You need people to be prepared for that. For that. Exactly. At the start, instead of like coming to do one thing and then now we're doing this other thing and then the other thing and the other thing. I think that is super hard for some people. For me, it was not that bad because I, because I think because of music. So in some ways, music is a good training ground to just try and fail at startups. Yeah, because you f- like most of your records fail, right? For it, most musicians. Yeah. Right? Like think about like how many you would work on versus how many become quote-unquote hits. I guess that's true. Right? People don't think about it in that way yeah. because mostly you're just listening to hits on radios or whatever. Exactly, but exactly. I guess even successful artists put out a lot of tracks and then only a few of them become very few lasting. Yeah, maybe 1%. How does that feel for artists? I think it's hard because you're putting in like your creative energy to every song. And like, if you ask any artist and most DJs or whatever, they'll be like, oh, my last record is the best one I've ever done. Right. Really? So they actually think that people believe that they're, yeah. like, they, if you put out an album and it has 12 tracks right, and you think everyone's great. Yeah. Even though probably only three are great. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then people really understand like what they gravitate to and like the community does like picks it for you almost right yeah uh versus what you think is going to be hot why doesn't anyone i guess i think i heard of an app that was trying to do this but basically lets you preview your tracks like if you had an album of 10 20 Mm -hmm. tracks you could just preview them with your hardcore fans so you could know which ones are good and then just cut the other ones the other ones but even if you do that, the next iteration, you're going to have another three that they pick. And then when you put those three and the other three, they're yeah. still going to prefer some, yeah. some of them, right? Yeah. Uh, so you can do that. And I, I think a lot of record labels like do you know, this kind of pre-screening and stuff like that. But I think it's still with things like music, creative stuff, like the community at the end of the day decides what's, what's good and what's not. Yeah. What they gravitate to. And you don't really have control over that. All you can do is like, Say, okay, I gave it my best shot. Here you go. What do you think? And put yourself out there. And then sometimes they're just going to shit on it. And uh, actually, most of the time, they're just going to be like, meh, that was okay. Right? And sometimes it's just something resonates and catches on and it just like goes from there. So do you think for artists, you you need a fair amount of resilience to yeah. keep going? Oh, yeah, a lot. I guess there must be like a pretty significant internal drive people saying, hey, I want to make this music because there's I'm intrinsically motivated to. Right. So fuck what you think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I think you really, really need that. And a lot of, I think the music industry is just like a hard place if, you, if you're not tough. People are going to say stuff about you. They're, there's always going to be critiques that you're not going to agree with. And there's just like a lot of shit goes wrong. And you just have to keep getting up. Like, I'll give you one example, right? Like the first time I went to the UK to play a show, super excited. First time, packed show, like 500 people, people outside, couldn't get in, right? But guess what? Like, I don't have a manager, tour manager, none none of that. I just went go with my buddy who's another musician. We play the show, like we are super happy. Guy just, the promoter just disappears. I, like, he's not there. So we, we didn't get paid. He just ghosted you. He just ghosted, right? Yeah. And you're like, I came from another country to this place, sold out a show, did all this stuff. And then like, you don't get paid and you just got to figure out how to get home again. Oh my God. Right? That's shady. Yeah. Right? The day before I put my second album out, one of the writers, we don't have like quote-unquote like professional managers right so you kind of like do all the paperwork and stuff uh yourself and this guy's like friends with me for a while so i'm like okay well i'm just gonna get like put this out i'll you know get it signed when i go to pay him um and uh, i'll just get it signed later right like he's my friend or whatever like i would go to his house and hang out with his kids and stuff like that uh i get a call from another record label saying you can't put your album out i'm like why I, you know, I made the whole record, you know, some people wrote some lyrics on it, but like, I pretty much did everything else. 
like this song is owned by us and we are going to block your album. So what happened was like that writer signed a deal with them and signed my that song over the lyrics to that label without telling me. Yeah. And I got to know the day before the album, like it's pressed. Everything is ready to go. It's going to stores tomorrow. I'm like trying to do promo. And they told you the day before. Yeah. What did you do? Um, so I pretty much went back to him, uh, the writer and said, like, just worked out a deal with him Yeah. and told him to go to the label and say like, no, I like signed this over. This is carved out right. from my deal. Cause he signed a blanket deal, right? Like not that song particularly. It's but like, like every I, song as a writer. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to just ask you a few few more questions. One was founding a company and having a kid at the same time. Yeah, it's a incredibly difficult proposition. Yes. I can't imagine doing it. <laughs> you know, I've just had a kid, and that seems very tough. Like you went through it for the whole first year, right? Right of uh, Renomi's life. Like yeah. how how was that? It was hard because I think being present is really hard when you're working on your own company. So I found myself a, a, a lot of times when I was like hanging out at home, just either like very stressed or like thinking about the company a lot. Um, and I really had to like work on it to be present. Um, I think that that was kind of the hardest part. And then like just the uncertainty of it all. I think like really I got through because my wife had a pretty stable job and that helped because I think if, she didn't do that and like my entire family was reliant on me and that startup working i think that would have been even harder and i'm sure a lot some people go through that as well yeah so having uh, a support network with kumi yeah i think kumi was pretty much the the reason that i was able to do startups right because she you know worked at a job and like got us health insurance and all that uh so at least that stress wasn't there but i it still felt like as a dad, you feel like you need to take care of your family and like sometimes feeling like, well, I'm in this and making this sacrifice. But because of that, I, I'm not really the breadwinner and I can't really. That was hard too, right? As a, I guess, like a dad or a man, right? Yeah. Like just being like, I, I can't really do that right now. But I think the reason... Um, the 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 benefits of that you don't see like it's almost like when you're doing a startup you don't see what you learn yeah and how much you're growing at all because just time seems like it's stopped like you're just solving every day is a I get that yeah. after ten years of starting companies I remember thinking I don't have any skills yeah same, like, I did yeah. not learn anything yeah. this entire time I'm like not qualified to do any job yeah and that was just like a dead period. Right. And then I it was only afterwards that I realized, oh, actually I am, you know, much better at understanding how business works. I'm a right. much better programmer. I'm a functional manager, you know, like all yeah. this these things that I didn't even realize I was exactly. Learning. So that was also yeah, for me to I went through the same same thing where I felt like I'm not qualified to do anything because I left my like finance, like what I was trained to do to do a mishmash of things. Yeah. So I, I was like, I don't even know what job I would apply for now. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> what, what are my skill sets? Uh, but then you figure out the, the resilience of like being able to stand up and figure out, okay, well, this, these are the skills that I'm, I got during the startup and this is what I kind of want to do. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you just kind of learn so much that you, you don't really know until you go out and start talking to people that weren't in the startup world. Yeah. Right? So um, I guess my last question is, do you have any practices or ways that you have cultivated that resilience mm -hmm. um, in your life now that you've, I'm, I think that you've been in a lot of situations that have, have, um, have built that resilience in you, but are yeah. there any things that you've done to consciously cultivate it? Um, yes. So I think the discipline aspect uh, of when I start committing to something, I'm pretty disciplined about it. I can kind of go through, almost take the pain and like keep going. 
uh, that I think started, I mean, all the way in pretty much Sri Lanka with sports and like my dad sort of establishing a very clear schedule of discipline at home. Yeah. I think that that has kind of continued on. So like when I set a goal that is like an achievable real goal for me, I kind of try to break it down and like get to it in steps. And I think that really helped uh, with startups as well as kind of whatever I have achieved. So a good example is like if I had set up like a weight goal or some sort of um, like physical goal or say like uh, I signed up to not drink for one month period of time. I'm pretty good about like not giving into temptation and just like sticking to it and yeah. get hitting the goal. Uh, so I think that has helped. I think I don't have a great meditation practice like you do, but I have taken up running, which is pretty, like, it feels like meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to, like, do breath practice while I run as well. So, so you're like, consciously controlling your breathing. Yeah. Is there a uh, guide that you read to that or? Did no, you... I, it's just something I figured out. Like, it's like, okay, well, this is one of the only times in the day or that 45 minutes is when I get the time to, for myself. And you're like solo, right? Running on the road or like in a park. And it, it just felt a natural kind of uh, time that I can take to also do the breath practice. Yeah, and one thing I learned was I grew up Buddhist in Sri Lanka, so like I, I, like meditation, it doesn't matter. Like it's about just being uh, present in the moment, and right, uh, you don't need formal practice. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, exactly. And then you don't need to be in a specific posture or anything like that. Like I think a lot of people think that you have to do the lotus posture. Right, yeah. Or, yeah, like you have to do all this stuff. That's not what meditation is. I think the the real meditation is just being conscious and like being in the moment. Right. Yeah, I think that people, especially Americans, almost need to go through the um, the more like their conception of meditation. Right, they have to yep. go through the trappings of meditation, so like sitting quietly and and um, you know practicing, focusing on the breathing as a way to even get familiarized with the idea. Yeah, that you know of meditation being. Uh, practice that you can do all the time and right. being focused and and I guess present in their their you know present moment experience yeah um, found that for myself I didn't start noticing those things in the world like I didn't start really being present more of the time in the world until I had that you know on the cushion experience yeah that was my conversation with Ranadu. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did I really loved hearing his stories about growing up and getting into the nascent Sri Lankan pop music industry. So if you like the podcast, please rate me five stars on iTunes and hit me up on Twitter at Justin Khan if you have any feedback or want to send a message. Otherwise, I will see you next week and I love you all.